Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust policy, practice, and enforcement around the world. In an increasingly complex environment, we hope to bring insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My guest today is a legend, an iconic figure in our world. A graduate of Vassar College and New York University, she became one of the first female partners of any Wall Street law firm in 1970, before turning to academia in 1976. For over 40 years, she's been an inspiration to thousands of students, an acute jurist and commentator, a fearsome advocate for progressive enforcement and an early proponent of hipster antitrust, a leading force in bringing antitrust law to emerging markets, a passionate feminist and a true force of nature. I'm delighted to welcome Eleanor Fox. Eleanor, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. I was going to start by asking you about the goals of competition law, but I read an article you wrote a decade or so ago saying we should think less about goals and more about perspectives and assumptions. Can you explain what you mean by that? I'm sure I'll be happy to. And thank you so much for inviting me here and for your generous introduction. So um, goals of antitrust. It occurred to me after endless debates, which still occur, as to what are the goals of antitrust, that for the most part, experts and those who are even most policymakers in antitrust agree to a, a large proposition that antitrust is about markets and helping making markets work. So it's for robust markets. It's for preserving robust markets. And from there on, the question is how to do it. And how to do it depends on assumptions. And you can see in the US Supreme Court decisions very clearly as between, for example, some of the cases that were opinions written by Justice Scalia and some of the dissents and partial concurrences by Justice Breyer, they agree that antitrust is for making markets work better, at least for eliminating the undue obstacles to competition that private firms will put in the path and everything turns on assumptions. And the big assumptions relate to how well the markets work. Do you assume they work very well and intervene very little? Or do you not make that assumption and see lots of market power and believe that there's much room for intervention? So thanks, Eleanor. So from your perspective, it's the assumptions you make and the implication you draw from those assumptions as to how often you're going to intervene, the circumstances you're going to intervene. Yes, that is right. And so, if you want me to, I'll say a word about consumer welfare debate there. You know, um, I'd love to ask you about that. As you know well, of course, the free market assumptions have represented the prevailing consensus in US enforcement for decades. And even before the Chicago School began to dominate thinking in the 1980s, you questioned focusing alone or primarily on um, uh, efficiency and consumer welfare, arguing that these goals were too narrow and constraining. And since then, if I look back over your literature, you've become even more passionate in that view. So can you explain why? Yes. So 
Of course, efficiency is important. Of course, making markets work for consumers is very, very important. Um, but it had seemed to me that at least for those who are the more laissez-faire and more libertarian, they were using consumer welfare as simply a marker to get to where they wanted to be. And if you, if you say competition law is for consumer welfare, and you translate that into what is output limiting and price raising, you have a very result focused view of antitrust. Um, and for, for those who are libertarian, they like that. But the fact of the matter is that markets are very dynamic and that our mission in antitrust can't be always looking at the outcomes, but can be and should be about preserving an environment that will incentivize the firms to deliver the most best things for consumers and keep the market access open for those who are the challengers. So it's that dynamic that I focus on, the, the environment for competition, which gives the incentive for firms to be their best. So can I probe that if you were king or queen for a day um, and were required to come up with a standard, and uh, your starting point was consumer welfare is an important part of what a standard should be, what would you add to it or what would you subtract? So what would be your standard? Well, actually, I've thought about this and because antitrust is, this relates, uh, this will resonate mostly with common law countries, but antitrust is very common law. It's very fact-based and it is applying concepts like don't harm competition to the very facts you have. Because it's so fact-based, I don't think there is one standard. And I have recently written that what I would like to do, I didn't say it that way as queen for the day, for US law, I would like to move back to certain very specific inflection points of decisions uh, where you have opinions in certain cases. So this was my advice, which won't be taken, uh, which is in Trinco, we adopt the decision of the Court of Appeals when it went up to Trinco, when it went up to the Supreme Court. In a case called California Dental, we adopt the opinion of Justice Breyer, who is dissenting. In Ohio versus American Express, we adopt the opinion of Justice Breyer. I had a couple of other cases in there, but you see the point. It's that the law is actually too fact-based and applying the concepts to the fact to say, there is this one standard. But if you have a whole line of cases and you are doing the next case based on the line that has come before you, that's very, it's both common law and by doing that, you can see how, um, you know, the Ronald Dworkin articles that say the next chapter in the law ought to fit with the chapters preceding it. It might change a little because standards have changed, markets have changed a little, but it should fit. So Breyer is a good fit with both the process oriented antitrust and the idea that there are anti-competitive practices that you can tell, you can see them. And when you see them, 
you should have a presumption this is illegal. So in California Dental, for example, it was the dentist saying that uh, dentists who are part of their trade association, which dentists had to be, um, could not advertise. Um, they could not advertise reasonable prices and better quality um, according to the rules of the association. So it's, it's, there are very simple things that U.S. Have, has gone back on, has, has um, retreated from, that helped our antitrust law have teeth. And I say very much as uh, to put people on it, Breyer versus Scalia. Sometimes when people talk about the consumer welfare standard not being the be-all and the end-all, they also have in mind that account should be taken of social or industrial employment or environmental considerations. What's your view of that question and those issues? Do you see circumstances in which the inquiry should be broader than just to focus on efficiency and markets? Well, that is one of the big questions of today. And I have somewhat different views for the United States and for example, for South Africa and even for Europe. And let's start with the United States. United States has a rule of law that in an antitrust case, only competition matters, which includes efficiency and innovation are relevant. And the social value matters are not relevant. So if car companies get together and they say, we're, we're going to raise our standards so there'll be fewer emissions, that's actually illegal per se under US antitrust law. And question, should it be? I would like to keep the US pretty straightforward, clear rule and put the question on to priorities and enforcement priorities. If I were the government, FTC or DOJ, I would investigate that case and would consider not suing, even though I think it's per se illegal. Uh, so it can be put on enforcement priorities. As for taking into account uh, workers, actually today, half of the workers' cases are actually market cases. They're not social value cases, even though they might involve, they do involve social values. Um, but for labor, you really have to separate those that are real market issues. Labor is an input. And a conspiracy to, of the buyers to lower the price of that input is illegal. It's an interference with the market. It's not consumer. That's a good example of why. It's not consumer welfare standard. It's market working standard. The workers have a right not to be ganged up on by the employers to lower their wages under the market process antitrust law. There is another side of labor issues that is a pure social issue. Uh, for example, what South Africa does, conditioning mergers on retaining workers that would otherwise be laid off, that's very against U.S. antitrust principles. I would leave it there for U.S. For South Africa, I wholly understand it. The whole gist of the South African law is equity for those who've been left out of the society. And there is a huge unemployment rate and tilting the playing field towards those who are the most vulnerable is so intrinsic in the South African law that I think it ought to be there. Sustainability is yet another question. And I, I actually like what Europe and Margrethe Vestager is doing on sustainability 
which is basically saying, oh, and I think maybe taking on board the article of your partner, Marit Stolmans, that there is so much in the sustainability issues that actually work hand in hand with better markets and to try to see where the compatibilities are and not just jump to a conclusion that it's a trade-off area. There may be an area for trade-offs. The Dutch, the Greece would like to make the trade-offs as I read it, but you can tell me probably better than I know. As I read it so far, the European Commission is not going to the trade-off area. It's going to the compatibility area. Yes, I think that's right, Eleanor. One of the upcoming podcasts we have is with the with the Director General, Olivier Gasson. So I'll put that question uh, to him. But let me turn to merger control. Uh, you'll recall well the controversy about the European Commission's General Electric Honeywell prohibition decision 20 years ago, when the then heads of the US antitrust agencies were publicly critical of the Commission's conglomerate effects concerns. And you and others wrote about that controversy and about the efforts made in subsequent years to uh, converge uh, enforcement. And in the years that followed, the, uh, the EC introduced reforms, changed its enforcement practice to conform more closely to that of the US agencies and other agencies around the world followed. Looking back, do you regret the exportation of US thinking and the resulting converge, uh, convergence to the extent it's uh, resulted in less intervention? I don't regret, and let me tell you why. Um, I don't put convergence above all else. I, I do think that convergence is a really good idea, but that countries, first of all, have to decide what their law is and how they interpret it. And I think this ideal of convergence works really well in an informative way, as I think it has in ICN, International Competition Network, um, where countries, many agencies did not quite understand what others were doing. And they might say, oh, I like what you're doing better than, uh, than the way I am doing it. But not to push nations into rules of law that they have decided are not good for them. So applying that to GE Honeywell, I actually think that, yeah, EU is EU law on mergers is more like US today, but not exactly. And they have, you have, um, that is Europe has, retained the idea that conglomerate effects might be illegal, but they, they are much more rigorous on considering what is an anti-competitive conglomerate effect, I think was in the court of first instance in GE Honeywell, uh, was just much more rigorous in the proof of the conglomerate effects. And even the EU guidelines preserve the possibility that there may be conglomerate effects. So I think what's happened is good in the sense of not complete convergence towards the US, uh, keeping the lines open to consider whether there's another route that EU might want to go. I think this might be particularly important in this era of high tech when analysts nations, um, the agencies are observing that there are cross-market effects that could be conglomerate effects in big tech. I'm not necessarily talking about mergers, although it could happen with mergers, a leverage of market power uh, across markets. In fact, Germany now has a statute that looks at 
power across markets as a really important way to look at market power today. So I think that flexibility to consider what is an anti-competitive effect that we want to attack is very important. Staying with mergers, we're obviously at a fascinating time in competition or enforcement with established principles coming under critical scrutiny, maybe for the first time in years in some jurisdictions and the consensus that uh, had been developed for maybe 20 years um, being called into question. With that uncertainty, surely comes a greater risk of divergence between antitrust agencies, even if you believe, as I think you do, that the consensus should be challenged. So on the one hand, we have the challenge to consensus. On the other hand, uh, a greater risk of divergence. As a longstanding champion of convergence, are you worried? And what, if anything, do you think can be done to minimize discordant divergence? I would have to say, first, there is as much divergence within the United States as you might see between the United States and Europe. This has to bubble up. We don't put it down just because it exists. Uh, there's huge divergence within the United States today. There are those um, who believe in the conservative Supreme Court opinions and what motivates them, which is more libertarian. And there are those who are neo-Brandeisian, who really, they might hate that Supreme Court jurisprudence. And there are progressives that also are pushing back against the Supreme Court jurisprudence. I think that the divergence, even within my own country, is a fact of life that just has to get played out. I don't think of it, I don't think of divergence as such as a negative, even though obviously it prevents you from getting to a smoother life of predictability. And I think we have an inflection point right now. And I think that big tech has led the way in seeing these issues right now that has, has forced the point of which side are you on? And sometimes for Neo-Brandeisian, you'd put it, are you with the corporates or are you with the people? That's, that, I think that's not an exaggeration, but um, most, I think, don't quite see it that way and must see it in a more nuanced term. So if it's a choice between convergence around a safe outcome or divergence that at least gives rise in your mind to the right outcome in some jurisdictions, but not perhaps others, you'd go for the latter. Yes, that's right. At least I, I would tolerate it and even nurture the vocabulary, the rhetoric around it. But if you're in a US court, you have a, a lot of certainty. I mean, you know, for experts, you know what the law is, you know where you can push it. So it's a fascinating time to be an antitrust lawyer or an antitrust jurist these days. Uh, with the appointment of progressive thinkers to lead the Department of Justice and the FTC, you must be incredibly excited in a sense, a lifetime's dream uh, fulfilled. Shortly after President Biden's election, you and Harry first wrote an article encouraging them to, and I quote, restore integrity, rejoin the world, reinvigorate enforcement and rethink key approaches. 18 months on, how are they doing? What advice would you give them? And what are your hopes for the future? So. Restore integrity 
had a lot of implications for our political scene because under President Trump, there was no integrity and he tried to use the Justice Department to carry out his wishes uh, to sue his enemies and to support his friends. And that's what the integrity meant. So that our current administration has integrity. We're worried about the future of our country, but I put that to one side because that was very specific to the political environment. The rest of that article and those four points was really to say something like EU has been saying with respect to big tech, that we can separate out some conduct that we think is almost always bad for the market and almost never good for the market. And we can put it down on paper and say, don't do it. And that that might be a better but complementary route to take along with case by case cases, um, because the cases are very, very slow. And you don't get a decision on whether this conduct is good or bad for years and after it's passed. So Harry in my article was meant to pick up on that tack and to say there is certain conduct that looks by the biggest big tech platforms looks almost always bad and almost never useful to the market. And rulemaking in the US taking attack from EU, not copying it, um, not saying there's no efficiencies defense, not copying it exactly, but taking that tack and say, um, rulemaking by the FTC could cut through the problem we have. And the problem is twofold. One, that if you go into the courts, the courts, if you go all the way up to the Supreme Court, it's going to say usually the firm had a right to do this because it's freedom of action of, a, of even a dominant firm and let it do what it wants. So the FTC, we thought, could make some rules that would be under its unfair competition mandate tougher than the law in our own courts. And if it could do that and get them in place and enforce them, it could cut through the two problems. One is cases take too long. And the second is US law is too conservative. However, um, there are problems. And the FTC may be working on this in this area. But meanwhile, the Supreme Court of US has come out with some principles of law that make it even tougher for the FTC to exercise rulemaking power. There's a question whether FTC has rulemaking power in antitrust. And there's a question whether rulemaking is going to be authorized in cases of very important new questions because of Supreme recent Supreme Court authority. So I think your question was, how well are we doing along the lines that Harry and I advocated? We're nowhere near getting there. I think that the FTC might be trying, but it's going to face strong headwinds. And again, if, if you were queen for a day, if you were Lena Khan, what would you be doing now? Oh, I think that for the most part, the agencies are doing the right thing. Um, they're trying to push the law to be more aggressive. And they're coming up with statements that are kind of holistic statements, anchoring it to theory and 
perspective. And I think for the most part, they're doing a pretty good job on that, but it is very hard. Biden actually implicitly gave the message and mandate to our new antitrust enforcers to revolutionize antitrust. That is extremely hard to do. And it would have done step by step, both in accordance with a strong concept and with very good facts for your cases. And they're trying. One thing, I think this was relevant to your last question too. One thing that has happened that looks like progress is that the conversation of the EU authorities with the US authorities is now much more on the same plane. Um, because before this administration, our authorities were more on a very conservative line that was very consistent with Scalia-type antitrust and a very, very narrow view of unilateral conduct enforcement. And the conversations were not very much in sync. And today, as Vice President and Commissioner Vasteyer said a couple of days ago at the Fordham program, um, she's very heartened by the fact that there are real conversations on a more nearly equal plane of vision for antitrust. It sounds like maybe you're trying to moderate expectations for the next couple of years, perhaps, and view this as a two-term project, at least. If it isn't two-term, it's extremely fleeting. Even if it is two-term, it's a hard road. And we will see. We don't know. Much is in much is an unknown factor now in US, given the elections coming up, and then of course the election in 2024. So let me turn to unilateral conduct in particular. You've spoken passionately about the need to make sure antitrust works for everyone, as you put it, and is copious enough to take account of monopoly power and new forms of abuse. In particular, you've criticized what you call the trivialization of Section 2 of the Sherman Act and called for much greater enforcement of the Act's anti-monopolization rules. How likely do you think it is that we're going to see a material uptick in enforcement in this area in the next couple of years? We might see an uptick in the cases brought, but in terms of the cases won, we're not likely to see an uptick unless legislation is passed that changes the kind of foundational thinking of perspective of what is anti-competitive unilateral action. I also think that for US, which has a standard of first screen of the firm has to be a monopoly, uh, that's a very high threshold to make. It's higher than most jurisdictions in the world. Um, most of them will have an abusive dominance standard. Even for the abusive dominance standard, nations and jurisdictions are considering that that might be too high for some of the activity, anti-competitive activity by firms such as the biggest big tech firms. And so I think that's a handicap for US in getting at unilateral conduct. So from where you sit there, at least 
three pillars of enforcement that are all critical. They're the agencies, they can do what they can do, they can bring the cases they, um, they can, but then you have the legislation that if you were in charge, you would, you would change, and you have the courts and the jurisprudence, that's a project that's gonna take time to, uh, to change. And specifically with respect to the legislation, the way the law is framed, would you move to a European style framing of section two, more like our article 102 or in the UK chapter two? Yes, nothing is perfect. I think I would move toward it. I wouldn't like to adopt the language of it. I think even Europeans who like antitrust are sort of troubled by the detail of 102 and 101.3 similarly. And the problem is, this is really a common law type subject that requires very fact-intensive analysis. And the words of a standard are very difficult to do. So for example, in our legislation in the United States, pending, not even given a good chance of passing, one bill that was introduced, it does not have traction. It would try to change the perspective standard of what's anti-competitive. This was one of the Klobuchar bills. It doesn't do a very good job because this is very, very hard. So it uses some new words that would all have to be interpreted again. And it's trying to get to a point where enforcement against dominant firms with market power is easier to make out. Therefore, I mean, because this is so hard legislatively, I have a proposal only in my writing uh, to do what I just said before. It would have to be legislative, though, because without legislative change, it stays as it is. Um, and the proposal was to go back to certain particular cases where you can see that the right is veering off farther, farther to the right and just turn back the law some couple of decades and start from there. The debate about Section 2 and unilateral conduct is not only about big tech, but it is about big tech to some extent, at least has been over the last few years. And the world's agencies have been wrestling with the issues that the digital world have thrown up. With Europe, as you know well, of course, largely taking the lead in bringing individual cases and now enacting legislation to establish a regulatory uh, regime. I'm going to ask you a two-part question. I think I know the answer to the first part, but the first part is, do you think the US should uh, follow in, um, in introducing similar kind of regulation? Uh, but the more difficult question is, do you think it's likely to do so? And in the absence of doing so, do you think the only alternative is really to press ahead with individual cases, assuming you think that they can be uh, sustained. So should US follow the lead in Europe, and you might bring in the UK as well as the EU, um, for the European DMA, which of course says it's not antitrust to begin with, um, but it certainly has a huge overlap with antitrust, um, side by side the cases. I do think that it would be useful to have some more rules in the US. If it could get there, I think it would be useful. I'm not, I don't think it can get there. I have some preference for the proposed UK system above the EU system simply because it's more flexible and more flexible to go with the kind of business model of the firm and therefore would be recognizing, very clearly recognizing 
what the firm has to do to deliver what it's delivering that consumers want. So I have that worry about the DMA that it might be too rigid. Um, but I think both of those paths could have been very instructive, helpfully, very instructive to the US if the US was ready to adopt something in that direction. I don't think the US is ready to adopt something in that direction. I, we have one bill that's out in front, which is the American Innovation and Line Platform Bill against self-preferencing. That's the one that's given the biggest chance of adoption and very, well, not, not probable that it will be adopted. And Congress is going home now for a break and coming back to face a lot of work related to the political elections coming up. So extremely unlikely that it will be adopted. So I think we're gonna say where we are. And I think the debate is, go. that means we US, our law is going to stay where it is. Our Supreme Court is not changing to be more liberal progressive in my lifetime. So what it takes is people like we have now at the heads of our agencies trying to push a picture to show the world or show the country that there are many anti-competitive practices, especially unilateral, um, that are simply not caught by the law. You touched, Eleanor, on the rigidity of the DMA and some of the hardcore restrictions in it. Are you troubled by that rigidity and the lack of scope that's given to advance objective justification or efficiency arguments or other explanations? Well, as an outsider, I'm a little worried, but there's also a possibility that this, that the worry will go away, that it will be handled in a way, implemented in a way that actually allows enough flexibility so that the firms are not handicapped. I think the way that it's stated right now gives a lot of wedge in the door for arguments of detractors to say that the whole enterprise is terrible. And I don't think the enterprise is terrible. I think the enterprise is good and needed. As you know, Eleanor, one of the things that the US agencies are doing at the moment are thinking about the merger guidelines. What's your hope for the new guidelines when they come out? The new guidelines will probably be one, one document for horizontal, vertical, and some conglomerate. I think that's good because I think the harms should be interrelated. Clearly, the new guidelines will be stated in a way that is more aggressive than our current guidelines. I'm not sure what my hope is exactly because things are very uncertain right now as to what are the paradigms that are likely. And I think I would just wait to see what comes out of the draft. So horizontal will be more aggressive along many of the same lines that exist now. Vertical will be much more aggressive in prioritizing the foreclosure effects and probably not or maybe downplaying efficiency effects. And there will be some related conglomerate. They could be very good and they could be very useful. And I think our agencies want to make them into a document that's not called radical, 
because they're subject to that criticism right now, they could get a lot of consensus on board for much more aggressive guidelines than we have now. So let me turn to a completely different topic, Eleanor. You've been a wonderful jurist, but you've been many other things as well. In a fascinating article, very insightful, I thought you wrote 20 years ago, entitled Being a Woman, Being a Lawyer, you identified what makes a successful lawyer. Compassion, empathy, insight, knowledge, logic, and skill. And you describe the challenges that women face in the legal profession, urging them to, in your words, share experiences. As you look back, have those challenges been largely overcome? And if not, what remains to be done? It's a little hard for me to know exactly how far the challenges have been overcome. I hear from my students because I like to question them about it that the challenges haven't been overcome. There are still biases. And since that time, 20 years ago, they sort of go underground. They're harder to see the biases. But I think biases are there. I think sometimes the bias is not just the senior partners of the firms, but also the clients of the firm. There is still a bias of wanting the top man. And I don't know when and how this will be overcome. For, for some women who fit a mode of being sort of hard and aggressive, they probably don't see any bias. And for women who don't fit that mode, they do. Uh, so maybe this is a fact of life, but things are better. So what would you do to overcome these biases, Eleanor? What I said 20 years ago about sharing experiences and sharing stories, I think, is really very valuable. This is about partly about transparency. Um, it's about the fact, at least when I was a young practicing lawyer, things were happening. Like, why wasn't I asked to, get, to be in that upfront job rather than in the writing the brief job? And I think the more people share the experiences, the more they realize this isn't just me, it's a pattern, it's happening. And for patterns to be exposed so they can be worked on. There, there's a lot of goodwill in a lot of firms and probably not in others uh, to try to learn from what is happening. Other than that, I think awareness is well, that is a part of awareness. That is one of the things that can be done, but I'm not sure I have a lot of other good solutions. So thank you, Eleanor, for that. So Eleanor, you've had an extraordinary teaching career with a legendary reputation for your lively classes, and I've had the pleasure to teach alongside you at a couple of them. What do you think is the essence of being a good teacher? The essence of being a good teacher is a bunch of qualities and the qualities include listening, know, trying to know your audience, trying to speak to your audience, trying to help them understand if they are not quite understanding, being very well prepared so you do know all the facts of every case, of the case that you are teaching, being very knowledgeable, and having a broader view and a good sense of humor. Thank you for that. Our time is almost up. I'm gonna end as I do on these podcasts with a few quick fire questions. My first one for you is what advice you would give someone beginning a career in antitrust? My advice is get fully into it and enjoy it. 
antitrust is one of the most interesting fields because of its spanning economics and law and political science. So for a good antitrust lawyer, first of all, I tell my students really, you know, do the work, um, get into it so that you do the work thoroughly and carefully and are prepared. After that sort of hard-nosed advice, breathe a little. That's on the peripheries of the narrow problem you were given. Get a good perspective of what is really happening in the world and enjoy it, enjoy the relationships, enjoy learning about new businesses, new fields. It is such a rich area. And a lot of my students want to be antitrust lawyers. And I hope those who want to be can because it is such a rich, interesting, exciting field. Having done this for a while, I couldn't agree more. Uh, to my mind, um, being curious is absolutely critical. Uh, coming to a new situation with an open mind and fighting as hard as you possibly can to get the best outcome, but in a way that is gracious and um, ensures that everyone at the end of a case um, believes that justice has been done. My second question, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? I don't have regrets, maybe strangely. I am so happy about the path of my career. I could not have imagined it for me. And so I am so happy that I took all the steps that I took in my career. My proudest achievement, I would say, is the work I do in Africa, that I do it, and a lot in South Africa, but other countries as well. I do it because I'm interested and I want to help to the extent I can. But when I've been told lately that I have made an impact on their law and policy, that really pleased me and pleases me. And I would say that is a proud achievement. In addition, my children are, of course, my number one and my grandchildren, my, together, my number one proudest achievements. And finally, Eleanor, many people know you wrote a novel years ago. Is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that is not widely known? Oh, so you think it's widely known that I wrote a novel. Ah, maybe everything is widely known. I do like writing. I do like writing fiction. I do like reading fiction. I'm particularly attracted to magic realism, such as um, Marquia Marquez. And perhaps now that I've taken emeritus status at my law school, New York University, I will open up some more time for writing that is not legal writing. So Eleanor, thank you for an absolutely wonderful podcast. I knew it was going to be fascinating and I knew it was going to be fun. You've been a true inspiration. I was lucky enough to be at Fordham the other day when you were honored for your extraordinary contribution. Um, we're um, uh, thrilled that you've been part of our world and look forward to the contribution I'm sure you're going to make in the years to come. Thank you so much, Nick, for the really fun conversation. I look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode, which is going to be an interview with the Director General of DG Competition, Olivier Gerson. So with that, good day to everyone. Bye.